Welcome to Adapt Peace Building with Stephen Gray. Hello listeners, welcome to our podcast where we talk about strategies to improve the practice of building peace on this planet of ours. The topics and methods that we talk about include local ownership and agency, systems approaches, complexity and adaptation, how we scale peace building processes, how we maximize their impact, how we ensure their sustainability and make sure that the changes that we and our friends want to see are maintained. So today we're going to be talking to someone called Emma Proud. Emma is the Director of Organizational Agility at Mercy Corps. Mercy Corps is one of the world's larger peace and development nonprofit organizations. So her portfolio covers and influences many people and programs in different countries around the world. One thing that I wanted to do before we start is define a few things that we're going to be talking about during this podcast, just for folks that aren't already aware. So we talk a lot about complexity and why complexity matters. Now complexity as it relates to doing peace building and development work and so-called developing country context, sometimes called fragile and conflict affected contexts. What complexity means is just that there are many variables that are affecting the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Many of the variables we don't have very good information about. We either don't know that they exist or we don't know their potency or how they're going to affect what we're doing. And they are dynamic. So the situation is always changing. And this matters because it's not very reliable to just pursue a predetermined plan because these variables that we don't know much about are going to impact that plan and render it obsolete very quickly and cause unintended consequences if we just forge ahead without being adaptive. So instead we use this other approach which we've talked about on the podcast before called adaptive management which is gaining a lot of traction amongst peace and development practitioners. Now adaptive management is different than having a a blueprint for success, a, a roadmap, a train track that you follow along. What adaptive management says is that we need to learn from our context, be sensitive to it, be prepared to have many experiments or make changes and choose the ones that are succeeding, adapt our programs in response to new information, change direction and still end up at the ultimate outcome that we wanted to have, our, our North Star, but recognize that we're not going to go in a straight direction. We might uh, have to change course during our path. And the uh, analogy or metaphor that's often given is a difference between being on a train track. It's a traditional approach where you're just barreling ahead no matter what happens in the world around you compared to being like a sailing ship navigating on the ocean that's buffeted by winds and currents and swells but is changing tack and making adjustments but always trying to ultimately go in the direction in which you're intended that is the outcomes that you want to see the third thing i'd like to define is something emma points out called attractors if you want to know more about attractors, you can Google Peter Coleman attractors and look for these little videos that he made 
when he was writing his book, The 5% about intractable conflict. Attractors are a term that's borrowed from physics to describe sets of norms, beliefs, events, feelings, institutions that maintain the state of a system inside a particular equilibria. So that's a really abstract way of talking. So let me give you an example. If you walk into a room full of people that you don't know, but it's a meeting of uh, a certain organization, there's a set of rules there that you know to a, a greater or lesser extent about how you're gonna behave, right? Like you're not gonna take your clothes off, uh, you're not going to uh, shout at the top of your voice unless it was some unusual type of meeting setting. And there's all of these reinforcing factors that reinforce that behavior. Like if someone wants to take their clothes off, they're probably not gonna get invited back. They're probably gonna get kicked out of the room. So there's inhibiting forces, there's enabling forces that maintain that status quo. There can be tipping points reached that push things into latent attractors. Like for example, if you introduced alcohol to that meeting room and you had a period of time pass by where people were having a good time, you might have a very different type of set of conditions manifest. That would be a different type of attractor. So that's probably a woefully inadequate description of an attractor, but hopefully uh, you get a sense of it. Like I said, you can always Google more to get a little bit more insight about complexity, what we mean, adaptive management, what we mean, attractors, what we mean, systems thinking, what we mean. So I will leave it there and now we will talk to Emma. We're very excited today to be speaking with Emma Proud from Mercy Corps. Emma has generously given her time to talk about the work of her organization in relation to agility and working in difficult and complex environments. So welcome, Emma. You might start by just telling us what you actually do, what your role is, and describing a little bit about that. Hi, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me on. So my role has... Um, a funny title, Director of Organisational Agility. And so what I'm trying to work on is some key leverage points across the organisation. It's an organisation of 5,000 people to try and help us become more adaptive. And what that looks like at the moment is focusing on managers and teams as being a very important leverage point for the adaptability of the whole organisation. That's where it really happens. That sounds like a, a large and important brief given the size of the organization that you're, you're working with. People don't know Mercy Corps is one of the larger peace building as well as other sectoral work, but one of the larger organizations doing this work globally, I think. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. But so that's a very important role. And it's interesting to ask, how did you get into this? How did you take an interest or begin working with ideas of complexity and how did you come to be in a position where you're thinking about how your organization can be more agile or more adaptive? I guess appropriately I kind of iterated my way here. It certainly hasn't been a, a straight path or one that I could have anticipated 
So I have a background in anthropology and then moved towards financial software and worked in the private sector for a long time. Before moving over to the development world and actually working with Mercy Corps in Ethiopia, working on market systems programs. And as you know, the main gist of market development programming is to really try and facilitate change rather than implementing it and instigating it ourselves. So there's a sense of having to understand systems and the way that systems interact and find important leverage points. So with that, obviously, you find yourself working at different levels from where you might expect or where you might imagine and with different actors so that you can really try and affect change across the whole system. So during that work, and I actually went on then to work for our technical support unit on markets for several years, we realised that, yeah, our technical approach does need to be different to do market development programming. But what really makes a difference as well is our teams. So you can only do this work if you have a real sense of curiosity, innovation, the the openness to what's happening around you, a little bit of humility, right? Because you're not fixing the problem yourself. And this idea of emergence, so testing something and seeing what happens and seeing how the um, how the system's responding, if you like. So I started to work on adaptive management for market development programs. And then we took a step to realise that, yeah, this is important for market development programs, but in all of the complex contexts that we work, in all of the complex challenges that we're facing, the same is true, right? We need teams with a similar kind of mindset. And so that was the start, really, of this journey into thinking, what can we learn from this work in market development around adaptive management that can be more broadly applied across the organisation. So that's where we started sort of grappling with that one. That's really interesting. You know, it strikes me that when we talk about markets and we talk about market development, these are natural sectors of experimentation, right? Variation and selection. I mean, if you're a, a small to medium enterprise trying to grow, if you don't adapt to your market, if you're not responsive to your customer, then you fail. And someone else that's more fit for that adaptive landscape is going to thrive, your competitor. So it naturally selects and firms have to be naturally nimble. But in peace building and development programming, we don't tend to seed initiatives like that in the same way, right? We kind of tend to do it in a more top-down way and say, here's our programs, and they're not supposed to fail. They're supposed to continue to stay the course, you know, in the traditional approach, even if they're not delivering the results. So I, I just feel like the background that you're coming from is so relevant to other sectors and, and learning from that. Well, which, it's so interesting then, right? Because like you say, that's how we're kind of built as development professionals. You've got the plan. We've got the, the idea of how to deliver the programs, whatever kind they are, whether they're peace building, whether they're market programs. And actually, it becomes almost like a security blanket, and it's very difficult to take that off. Both say to ourselves and mean it that, yes, it is all right to fail, and we are going to try something and try something small. So I I can throw it around as if it's easy to say, let's change our mindsets, but it's not. It takes hard work, and there are a lot of very human elements at play that influence us. 
in that that we have to kind of acknowledge and get over. So yeah, it's interesting. And that's a piece of, of the work that occupies you a lot in your current role, right? Working across the organization, trying to bring in cultures and practices of adaptive management. Can you tell us more and unpack for us what that looks like for you on a monthly and year-to-year basis? Yeah, so what we identified was that in lots of the case studies that we've done, so we've done lots of case studies around adaptive management, starting, like I say, in, in market systems development and then reaching into other sectors. And one of the most important factors time and time again was the leader the manager, the person who kind of held the team, who set the tone, who kind of, yeah, helped people work out how to dance with this system, right? And we realized that some people were saying, well, then we just need to recruit more people in that image. But in an organization of 5,000 people where you have 1,500 managers, neither can you nor do you want to just replace everyone. So what can we do to build and strengthen the the teams that we've got, the managers that we've got, so that they're setting this tone and sending this message more widely. So we had two problems that we were trying to solve. There was that one, plus the fact that in Mercy Corps, we had very good leadership building, if you like, for the upper echelons of the organisation. But there was a big missing chunk, the missing middle, which we talk about a lot in market development too, of missing middle of our managers who had no clear expectations or training. And we thought, if we want to solve both of these at the same time, what happens if we put them together? What happens if the training for every manager is actually trying to help them be better managers and guide their teams to be more adaptive? So that's kind of where it emerged from. And are these teams at headquarters in the field or both? Everywhere. And not just program teams either, because one thing that we've really realised from all of our work on adaptive management is that the system, if you like, at the organization level is what enables us to adapt. Okay. So for a long time, we were pointing at donors and saying that the donors, we'd love to adapt. Of course we'll adapt, but the donors won't let us do it. Right. And then we realized that that just wasn't true and that we had a lot of our own constraints culturally, organizationally, systemically, right. That were holding us back. So This really is something that's for everyone, for headquarters or, as we say, support office teams, for country programs, for regions, for operations, for programs, for finance, for everyone. And practically, how do you imbue the principles and practices of adaptive management within your management and teams? Is it just their induction and training programs? Is it in workshops that people go through? And is it built into your program management cycle? And and if so, how and at what stages? Brilliant. So I'll take them piece by piece. So again, we just can't move away from the importance of systems. So what we recognized was that what often happens is that you take managers out, train them up, shake them, get them really excited, and then basically put a changed person back into an unchanged world, right? And as we know with systems and attractors, Obviously, what ends up happening then is that you get pulled into the attractor of meetings and workshops and emails and business as usual. And all of that excitement and change that you'd wanted to imbue your team gets washed away and you become pulled back to that normal attractor. So how can you then 
change the system and what does the system look like in this instance? And it looks like the team. So rather than just train the manager, what we're doing is working with the managers and using a series of kind of micro learning and a regular cadence of sessions that managers kind of like a guide to lead their teams through so that everyone's got the same language and experience. So we're basing a lot of it on neuroscience. So there's a a foundation of neuroscience. And then that's both in terms of the content, but also our approach to learning. So you're revisiting topics, like I said, it's helping you pay attention to one thing at a time. There's kind of good spacing. So it's over a series of weeks. So the team come back together again. And rather than sort of drinking through a fire hose, there's this drip, drip, drip and revisiting of practices and having the time between sessions to practice. And then an important concept in neuroscience of learning is this generative idea, right? Where you take a theoretical concept and through talking, you apply it to your own experience and life. And that really helps learning stick. So we've created a series of videos and kind of like a discussion guide that managers can use to steer their teams through the discussion. And what we're finding is that so much of this has got to do with psychological safety, really empowering your teams, really um, listening to your teams, all the things that we need also for working in a complex world, right? So we're trying to model these through these sessions so that people get used to noticing what's happening around them, feeling empowered to talk about them in your team situation. And what we're hoping is that by developing these muscles, then when you come to programming or your operational work or whatever it is, there's really that sense of um, the people who are nearest the information making decisions and feeling empowered to, to talk and share their opinions. And, and I think that's where our best work is going to come from. That's fantastic. So people are getting a language and a mindset of being adaptive, which is, is being inculcated and addressing some of those very human tendencies to be afraid of uncertainty, for example, or to want to have you know, a, some sense of control over the future. Mm. Well, it's fascinating that you say that because one of the one of the big principles that underlies the neuroscience is we use an adaptation, but I don't know if you come across this SCARF model, which directs all of us and all of our behavior. And one of the important factors there is certainty. And we're all driven by the need for certainty. So even just having a language, like you say, around this, and recognizing how that leads to certain biases in our behavior has been so powerful. There's really something important in language that helps us overcome some of those biases and understand them. And I'm still interested, I think, because I grappled with the challenges of trying to be adaptive in a, in a field setting and the reality of having to manage a program and having to report and having to demonstrate results and having to plan. And I'm interested whether Mercy Corps has learned about how the program management cycle looks different from an adaptive management approach and how, to what extent, you've been able to 
push that through the organization, whether it's kind of like an experimental, we do it in certain places, or whether you're trying to kind of mainstream that in, in mm. institutional practices. Yeah, great question. So we have grappled with the same, and it was fascinating because we were at a point where um, adaptive management was gaining as a phrase, was gaining currency across the organization and interest. And it it started to sound like much more sexy than program management, right? And people started using it almost as an excuse, like, oh, no, I don't have to do program management. I'm being adaptive. I'm doing adaptive management. And from both sides, that felt really wrong, right? The program management doesn't mean not being adaptive or being tied down. And from an adaptive management Perspective. We were saying it doesn't mean there are no, I can't think of the word, not no rules, no, there's no integrity to it. You know, I mean, this is structured and intentional. It's not just willy nilly. So what we decided to do was really bring these two things together and say, okay, you don't have a choice anymore. We're going to start talking about adaptive program management. And really the idea was to start integrating very explicitly the principles of being adaptive into our program management at Mercy Corps piece. Honestly, our vision and intention for it is further ahead than the reality, but there's a very clear intention. Make sure that those are very well woven together and that the program management system, program that everyone has to do incorporates and kind of um, encourages adaptive behaviours. And practices, not just behavior. Mm-hmm. And that can look a few different ways. First of all, the point you just made echoes what Duncan Green said a few weeks back. And he said, being adaptive is not an excuse for being a bad manager. You know, you still need a North Star that's guiding you. It doesn't just mean that you can go in any direction and say, you know, I'm improvising, I'm, I'm being adaptive. So totally hear what you're saying there. And I'm wondering the different forms that adaptive management can take. I mean, in some instances, it's people having a kind of experimentation process where maybe they try a few different projects of a smaller scale at the same time and they're kind of safe to fail, right? But they want to see which one's going to work. And then they're only going to go with two out of the six and then they're going to look to scale them up, for example. Other forms of adaptive management might be okay, we have a structured process where we're pausing and reflecting every three weeks or three months, whatever the timing is, and we're looking at what's working and we're changing course, like a a programmatic form, um, not an off-the-cuff form, but a programmatic form of adaptive management. Is there any kind of variant that is emerging in Mercy Corps work? I mean, I know that you've done a bunch of case studies, so what what would you draw out from those about the forms of adaptive management that you're using? I'll be honest that we are better institutionally, I would say, at the latter form. I think we all have the, the hope that we'll get better at experimentation and real split testing and, you know, these kind of simultaneous experiments to see which approach is the most effective. I wonder if it's by virtue of the sector, the limited resources, our mindsets, timing, I'm not sure what, but what we find is that we're much more comfortable, I guess, to be honest, with that sense of adaptation as 
stopping, making time to reflect and adapt to see what's working, to see what's happening around us now, not before when, when we did our last bit of planning and iterating accordingly. And yes, with the boldness of saying, let's stop some things, let's change direction, let's keep going, let's amplify this piece. But it's been easier to ingrain that across the organization. I feel like that's almost like a, a foundation, right? If you don't at least do that, it's very difficult to go straight in with the experimentation. So in fact, one of the four practices of people with possibility, which is this um, program that I was describing, is make time to reflect and adapt, which covers the two perspectives of kind of, yes, it's, it's to do with the time and the quality of that time, not just another meeting in the diary, everyone's got too many of, but how do you really use that time and it has a different quality and how do you make sure that you're intentionally sourcing different perspectives for that sense of emergence to happen? That relates to a question that I have around information flow. Uh, so in a typical program cycle, you have regular reporting requirements and you might have some kind of evaluation at the end and they're according to certain indicators and, and outcomes that you're supposed to meet. In an adaptive approach, depending upon the organization, the information flow could be very different. You talked about making sure that you have the right sources of information. So understanding your context and, and much closer to real time from a variety of perspectives. But also, if you're going to adapt, you're going to change direction, you have to be accountable for that, right? So you have to have some kind of recording or evidence for why you change direction and how you change direction. So you don't end up in a completely different place than you intended with no record of why you went there, right? It's not going to look good. So have there been any evolutions or, or new practices that are being used in Mercy Corps to try and track and use information in different ways? There's a whole team. So the program performance and quality team who look at a lot of the innovative work with M&A and making sure that, I mean, talk about data-driven decision-making and really trying to transform that information into action. I think we're getting better at using information for decision-making. I think what's been an interesting evolution as well is this realisation that the indicators sort of moving away from just using particular indicators that we've generated for donors right and stopping there and really trying to think that's fine but what do we actually want to know as a program that will inform our program quality and being much more intentional about asking those questions which goes of course to making sure that it's not just seen as ME's job right that really ME is everyone's job because that's what's giving us information that we need to do the best programming one of the things that we've been experimenting with is something called adapt scan and this emerged from a usaid research project where we were trying to say well we keep talking about adapting being good but is it no how can we really track the impact of um adapting and um, we came up with uh, a model based on our adapt work with irc 
And in that, we've kind of identified these adaptive factors, which are things that kind of either enable or inhibit teams from being adaptive. And with AdaptScan, we were saying, okay, so what we're anticipating is that if you have these particular adaptive factors in place, you can have these adaptive actions where the team has actually adapted. And we would expect some adaptive margin, right? So that's what's the difference between the program as a result of adapting compared to the direction it would have been heading in or the, the results we would have seen. So it was a fantastic process of going with a couple of pilot teams and really digging in with them to uncover what were their adaptive factors. And that bit in its own really helped teams think about how they could be more adaptive and flexible. And then the process of reflecting on their adaptive actions was so powerful for teams, right? And then to, to be thinking through, well, you know, we, we went back later and said, well, what difference do you think there was? And I mean, it's always kind of theoretical, right? But as a result of that change that you made, what was the difference? And for teams to be able to articulate that and really start seeing the relationship between these things has been incredibly powerful. That's fascinating to see we did this and then we had this effect and this effect. You're kind of seeing what the, the causal chain was, which is often very different than what the perhaps the initial theory of change might have been. It's things unfold in different ways. I would love to know if I can challenge you to dig into your memory banks what the enabling and inhibiting factors were for adaptive actions. Yeah. So. Because if you can't recall them perfectly, <laughs> I certainly do not blame you, but it would be great to point to any publicly available resources that we might be able to make our listeners aware of. It, it strikes me that this language of adaptive scanning, adaptive margins, adaptive actions, in, uh, enabling and inhibiting factors and adaptive benefits is very useful and I'd love to be able to explore that more. Yeah, and so now, of course, I'm trying to find the exact um, exact pieces, but there are bits around kind of like your context and the understanding of the context. Having a clear vision, culture and relationships, your learning approach, decision-making, and I can find the um, information and I can send it because it's, we've got, you know, short reports that detail the factors and the impact that it made. So I can send you those for some notes. That's really useful. And we'll include those in the show notes. It relates in a way to an idea that I want to talk about, which is capitalizing on emergence. I think sometimes when we talk about adaptive management and we're trying to make a case for it, Sometimes we're making the case for, well, we can manage, we can be more adaptive to our context and so we can be more conflict sensitive or we can adjust as we need to, but we're also managing risk. You know, we're pushing back on that idea that it's not just things aren't just going to go wild and crazy enough in a different direction, but there's a positive case to be made for it around traditional programming being a bit stuck in its idea of change and its track and it misses opportunities to actually take advantage of something new in the context or to allow things to emerge. So can you explain what is meant by the idea of capitalizing on emergence or maybe any examples that you come across? Yeah, I mean, I think what I would like to 
mention is one of the ways that we're seeing around that, and you said that Duncan Green mentioned this before, is really kind of being very clear about setting that North Star as well, right? Like, and, and not holding that to a few people, but really being clear, this is where we're headed. And this shift towards empowering people and really believing that, right, that there will be great ideas coming from everywhere that will help us get there. So I think capitalising on emergence, if I think in our immediate team, in terms of the team, I think it really is to do with creating that psychological safety, really listening to people, really showing people that their voice is heard and acting on it, right? So there's a very powerful Dan Honig from Harvard University did a study about 10,000 aid programs that he looked at across nine organizations, nine years, and found that in complexity, of course, every program struggles. It's more and more challenging. But actually, in the programs where people were empowered and the decision-making sat near the information, that's where they were most successful, right? In command and control type environments, much less so. So I think in terms of teams, when you put your heads together and take off the hat of whichever role you're supposed to be in, which really does limit people's thinking, I think, and critical thinking and willingness to engage and challenge and really just see ourselves as heading towards that North Star and being ready to talk, then the new ideas come up. Other people will say things that they've noticed while they've been doing their work. And our work will emerge in that particular direction. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're saying if the decision-making capacity is closer to the source of contextual information, then those distributed decision-makers in an organization are able to take opportunities that might be time-bound or geographically bound or that information is not available to a centralized command and control type structure. So they can take advantage of opportunities that otherwise the organization would miss out on. Yeah, and then there's a wonderful feedback loop because we all have this, again, in that model, this craving for autonomy, right? And so when you start seeing that it was your decision based on your information that changed the program in that way, you literally get a rush of dopamine and feel this sense of, again, sorry to say, empowerment right? And hey, my input and my perception makes a difference. And so then that leads to a greater level of investment and ownership. And so then you pay more attention. You know, it's this kind of positive feedback loop. And other people start seeing the same. And you end up with a team who are seeing those opportunities and seizing them. You know, it strikes me as a very good way to make your team members feel like they have a sense of purpose when they're actually impacting how the organization works from the bottom up. I wanted to, Emma, give you the opportunity. We've talked about a bunch of, of different models and uh, pieces of work. The SCARF model, I think it was, the work that you've done between uh, Mercy Corps and IRC. Um, you talked about that, some different neuroscience frameworks. I wanted to give you an opportunity to do two things. One is to just to reference any other frameworks or way or processes that listeners might be interested to look into, if you haven't mentioned them already, 
And the second thing that you can do is just talk about where you see this going for Mercy Corps, like where you guys would like to be as an organization in five years' time. Great question. So on the other frameworks, there are things that I can share on the SCARF model. I think it's it's amazing to me how powerful it is. And as we're rolling this work out across the teams, it's incredible how this is one piece that really resonates and makes a difference. ADAPT is the collaboration with IRC. And ADAPT SCAN was our next iteration. Um, um, I can't think of any more that come to the top of my mind to share. In terms of our vision as an organization, it's a really good question. And it makes me realize that you can get into your own little track, right? And doing lots of iterating across that. There's a very close link for us with all of this work on being adaptive and innovation. So one of our, at Mercy Corps, we have, we're driven by the three I's of impact, influence, and innovation. And we say that innovation is at our core. And by that, we don't mean something that's necessarily new, but something that's better, right? And so this sense of being able to, we talk about sort of building up, tearing down, really admitting failure and moving forwards and trying something new. And the bit that I've been describing now is one facet of that that I think is really important. But because this is so central to our DNA, then trying to work out, well, what are the other internal enablers and inhibitors that might be really encouraging us in this? I think the next thing that we're going to tackle is, okay, if we're saying these things are important, how are we measuring them internally? How are we making sure that people are actually really held to account that this is really what we mean and really the kind of behaviours that we've got, that we expect of you? You know, so I think that that will be the next the next piece that we're on. Excellent. And one of those eyes that you mentioned was influence. You've put out some great case studies already. Do you have any intentions? Of, I mean, I get a sense from the conversations that I'm having that the idea of adaptive management, it's cliche to say that it's growing popularity, but it's not just growing in popularity as a language, but its application, like the practical tools to do it. We're kind of entering a stage of understanding how does this shift ways of working programmatically? How does it shift ways that funds are, are given out and accountability is managed? So are you guys, how do you work in that space? Do you actively advocate for adaptive management? And you know, what do you see as the, the main headwinds or maybe possibilities for pushing further adoption. So I agree with you entirely that this is really gaining momentum and it's been growing over the last few years, but now it's kind of taking off and it's been interesting. So we started focusing very much on the adaptive management side and have shifted increasingly as I've been talking about to thinking about the internal factors that drive it. And I noticed that that feels like a bit of a, a sectoral shift too. So as an example, I was at an ALNAP event about making humanitarian response more flexible. And the conversation in the room was very different from where it would have been three or four years ago. And Lenny Wilde quoted 
shifting from the architecture to the plumbing, right? This move that we're, that's where our attention needs to be now. Again, in terms of finding a useful leverage point, like we could work with many programs across Mercy Corps, but if you think how many programs we're working on, we have, then obviously that would take an awful lot of time. So what are the institutional factors that you can use to influence? So you'll see that, for example, on the USAID CLA have a, a learning podcast and there have been some interesting episodes that are very much about what, what's the plumbing, the nuts and bolts that need to happen inside an organisation. So I think there's certainly a shift towards recognising that and we're trying to share some of our lessons in some of those forums and we're lucky that we've got this in very intentional focus and it's still overstretched honestly there are so many other things that we also need to look at and talk about we've tried to understand a little bit what some of the things that we're working on I can share that too we have a, a kumu like a visual presentation of some of our own internal pieces of work around particular blockers but yeah so I get the sense that we're starting to recognize these institutional factors and that's the same for donors too, by the way. They're starting to realise, I think, what they have happening internally that's getting in their way of being more adaptive. And we're certainly trying to share our lessons broadly. Fantastic. Um, just for people that don't know, Kumu is a software mapping tool, often used for systems mapping, but used for other types of mapping. There's a, a foundation that I work with in Colombia that has done exactly the same thing done internal systems mapping of their organization and trying to understand what is blocking and what is potentially enabling what are the leverage hypotheses that would enable them to take a institutional change towards systems and adaptive approaches you also mentioned cla which is usaid's collaboration learning collaborate learn and adapt <laughs> and adapt and they have a fantastic set of uh, program management tools from a, an adaptive perspective that people would be benefiting from having a look at mm, and some great podcasts and yeah so we've got competition in the in the podcast world <laughs> fantastic as you said that there's more and more interest in conversation about this so thank you for being part of this conversation and for offering so much useful insight from what you're doing with mercy corps it's been a pleasure to have you on here and thank you very much for, for talking to me today. No, thank you, Stephen, for inviting me. It's been a lovely, lovely to have this space for a conversation on this. Thank you. All right, folks, thank you for listening. That was Emma Proud from Mercy Corps. Like always, if you're interested in more information about what we talked about, there's going to be a lot of links and explanatory materials which will be available on our blog that will take you through to SoundCloud where you will see all of that good stuff. So thank you for listening. We've got a lot more interesting episodes coming up. So keep tuning in. Bye for now. Visit us at adaptbizbuilding.org slash blog.